Welcome back to Significant Watches, everyone. We're excited because there are finally some auction catalogs for us to talk about. Um, Gabe went to the Phillips preview when it was in New York last month. So we're going to start with Gabe giving us a little bit of an overview of, of what he saw when he went to the preview in New York. Gabe, why don't you take it away? Hey, so let's start with uh, Geneva Auction 15. Uh, we should have some really cool things there. There's obviously one of the highlights for me, which is the Simon Wiesenthal Patek 1503, uh, which is one of two known in that combination. Just a very beautiful black dial with brigade numerals, a simple time-only watch with great provenance. Um, yeah, so what's the story real quick, uh, Simon Wiesenthal? Can you tell the story real quick for, for those who may not know? So uh, Simon Wiesenthal was a uh, was a Holocaust survivor who then, after the war, dedicated the rest of his life to uh, hunting Nazis, basically the Nazis that had escaped. And um, you know he has a foundation, and he was very active. And he died uh, maybe fifteen or so years ago. And he's just one of these mythical creatures of the uh, you know the Nazi hunting era, which is. Uh, you know, the 50s and 60s, you know, obviously there's the uh, capture of Eichmann as the pinnacle of that, which he had nothing to do with, but it, there was definitely a lot of uh, interest at the time. So um, he's just one of these characters who's uh, who's very important in that, in that world. Um, plus, this is a great watch. Uh, I've been actually wondering who the f- original owner was, because I, you know, we, they, they didn't, Phillips didn't provide any information on how he acquired it, but this was um, this was a 1942 production watch. So uh, obviously he was a little bit uh, predisposed and wasn't buying watches in 1942. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, if the person who purchased it before, because it's kind of a uh, an interesting watch that somebody would go out of their way to purchase um, in the secondary uh, markets uh, at that time. So you know, I thought that that might have some interesting history. I know it was sold, I believe, by Christie's 10 or so years ago. So um, it's come up and that had come from his family. And so it's been sold. And I guess this is third or fourth uh, owner at this point. Um, Other than that, there's obviously a 1518 uh, Pink Pink, which is great. Um, It's a well-worn watch. The, the, The dial, I think, is probably the least nice uh pink color that we've seen of the last couple that have come up obviously the king farouk and the one in december i think it was 2019 at phillips in new york and uh, this one also was super worn part of the case is totally polished likely from wear instead of the brushed mid case um also there are scratches on the dial probably it was it probably fell in the hands fell off at some point um which carries a crazy estimate still you know i think the highest is like two and a half million or something like that but other than yeah, that i'm I curious was... i'm curious actually maybe we can stop on that one for one second because the pink on pink from december of last year that went for nine million and change i want to say uh this one's got an estimate of 1.2 to 2.4 like you said the condition is is nothing like the pristine one from last december Eric and Gabe, I'm wondering sort of what type of a hit that's going to have on the actual result on this one. I don't, I can't imagine uh, it would take that much of a hit. Um, you know, I mean, obviously not in comparison to that one, but I think it'll, it'll hit its estimate, its high estimate, probably surpass it just based on rarity and the amount of interest on these pink pinks, uh, even though we've seen three come up for sale in not such a long time span, which is always a little concerning sometimes with these high priced watches, but I can't imagine it'll hurt too much. Yeah. I think, um, I think it, it might sell around 3 million all in or just under that. If I had to, if I had to guess, um, it's a beautiful watch. It feels very, uh, very honest and original. It's just, you know, it's got scratches on the dial and is uh, it's more of a beater 1518 pink on pink, if you will. If you need a beater 1518 in pink, this is it. <laughs> 
But uh, something else that I really liked in in the Geneva sale was the amount of interesting uh, independents that were there. Not just, you know, the Jorns. Obviously, there's chock full of Jorns there. Uh, you know, we, we don't even need to get into them because, you know, there's there's handfuls every sale now, uh, which is good money grab, I guess, for, for the auction houses. Uh, but there was a nitroglycerin. I don't know if you guys saw that. The uh, MBNF and Urwork, which they hadn't advertised at all. This is many years ago, and it was like super under the radar. It was just this crazy project that they had put together. Max just like slid it into the website one day, and there were a couple of them for sale. And, we, and I haven't seen one come up for sale in a long time, um, but definitely not at auction. And I thought... Um, that and also the King Cobra, the Urwork, which I think is one of the coolest Urworks that they've ever done, which is this linear movement. You know, it, it, the movement tells time and then it's got uh, these linear uh, retrogrades for the hours and the minutes. And then it's got a disc for the uh, seconds and it's based on the Cobra movement from, uh, I forget who did that, Patek. Louis Cartier. From, yeah, uh, Louis Cartier. Albert were the uh, designers of the uh, Cobra. Right from Patek, random, yeah. yeah, kind of a random design that came out of those two. It's like it's kind of the polar opposite of what you would anticipate from uh, Louis Cartier because this is more kind of um, that one. I guess, I guess it's interesting in the regard that it's it's you know it's a linear format. It's just really out of place from the nineteen fifties in in any kind of you know in anyone's perspective who was be, who would be making that. But they did the prototype, and it's now in the Patek Philippe Museum, which is really interesting to see yeah there are actually a couple of movements uh that were that were put together that are floating around i know at least of three of them that are uh cool but yeah that's really cool that's probably my favorite or work and then on top of that you know there's a couple of opuses the three the five which are great uh the three is uh, is a blinged out one it's the one that he did with viani which i think is one of the greatest ones not that version but great and the five is one with um with her work um there's also a cool vutilainen uh one note i will say quickly is uh, i don't know who did the estimates for the nitroglycerin and the king cobra but they're ridiculous uh the the nitroglycerin is going for 20 to 40k estimate and they're saying the king cobra is 30 to 60 um i i've never seen one, any of those trade even close to that you know i've never seen them trade basically below the six figures so you know very very far off um the the royal oaks you know there's a lot of them i guess if anybody's really interested in that there's the uh, carl lagerfeld one which is probably maybe the highlight for me on there um just because he was so ahead of its time to be totally blacked out like that and you know it's well documented that he wore it um but I think just uh, looking at, at the number of lots, there's 289 lots in the, between those two sales. And of those 289 lots, 73 of them carry a high estimate of 200,000 or higher, which I think is a pretty big number that we're seeing a lot more watches with the uh, million plus Um you know, there's, there's for the Royal Oaks, it's about 37% of the lots for the Royal Oaks sale carry uh, a high estimate of 200,000 or above. And I think that's, that's going to be a big, big, big moneymaker right there for, for Phillips. That's, you know, there's some, there are a couple there that are at half a million and above. And for Royal Oak, I think that's, I don't know, a lot, maybe too much. So that's, uh, that's what I got. Yeah, I think um, we're we're entering the uh, the exciting period of of the year uh, as we see Monaco Legends coming up at the end of the month. There's currently uh, also the Sotheby's uh, auctions in Hong Kong. They have a ton of ton of great uh, watches, um, and very excited to see how those do. And uh, yeah, so I guess Monaco Legend. I think one of the lots I'm I find most interesting is the 3448 in white gold uh, that came from uh, John Goldberger Oro Montanari's collection. Um, you know the 3448 I think is one of the most beautiful watches, but it's not that great on the wrist in my opinion because of the short lugs. They kind of wear 
top heavy and they move around the wrist in a weird way. I think this aspect of how watches wear uh, is not often discussed. We're just looking at how beautiful they are. But um, that watch um, has a white gold detachable Patek Philippe bracelet. That's absolutely insane. And the condition looks incredible. I have not seen it in person, but it's lot 249. uh, And it's got a starting uh, low estimate at 350,000 euro. Uh, and then Phillips has a 3448 in white gold as well, um, not on bracelet, but um, I'm excited to see, you know, how these both do. Um, let me look at which lot that is. That one is um, lot 216, and that's 300,000 to 500,000 is the estimate. Uh, also, notably, there are two 6200s coming up. Uh, there's one uh, at Phillips and also one at Monaco Legend. Uh, the Monaco Legend watch was formerly uh, owned by John Goldberger as well. Um, so that that's interesting. People that own 6200s are a little bit um, nervous about how these will do. Not, not a common watch, obviously. Uh, and you've got two coming up in a matter of weeks. Um, so that, that will be interesting. There's all kinds of modern watches kind of continuing the trend as, as Gabe mentioned beyond the Royal Oak auction. Um, there's a 101.027 X long one, which is not that common of a watch. People love it because of the, it looks essentially like the steel long one with the blued hands. Um, but that's at 30 to 60. I think that'll, That'll really fly. And then they have one uh, also in white gold with the blue dial <clears throat> that I expect will go quite crazy. And then just a standard uh, data graph of the first generation 39 millimeter that will do well. One kind of interesting thing when I look through the, the Philips Geneva uh, 15 auction, hard to believe we're already on Philips 15. I remember uh, Philips 1 vividly. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of watches that we've seen come up to auction previously. So, um, there's a Christian Klings, uh, which was a watch I, I sourced and sold, uh, at, at Christie's, um, uh, it was the first Klings to come to auction. There is, uh, Chronomatic Autavia, which we sold at Christie's, uh, June, 2017, that one came from Jeff Stein. Now that's up again. Lot 128, I believe, sold a couple years ago. That's a Zenith A384, new old stock. You know, new old stock watches are not the most rewarding watches to own because you just have to keep them in the safe. It has all the blue wrap on them. Um, lot 134 is a Hoyer, by the way, as an aside that... I really don't believe is a good watch. Uh, very surprised to see it in the auction. Uh, so I would avoid that one in my opinion. Um, and there's just a ton of others that, that we saw sell, uh, in recent years, either at Phillips or other auction houses. Um, you know, I could come up with a list of probably 10 at least that I saw just immediately on first, first flip through the catalog that, that sold at auction the last few years. So um, we'll see how those do, if people are, are super excited by them or not. Um, interesting as well to see Haybring, the Irwin star for SJX. Uh, there's one in Phillips Loop This just sold one for about 13,000 and Wright Auctions in Chicago just sold one for about 10,000. So we'll see uh, who gets the, the highest uh, the highest mark there. It's just funny to see these new watches, uh, you know, be flipped so quickly into auctions. Um, so yeah, I think, um, it's shaping up to, to be an exciting few weeks for watches. Well, that you're about the 3448 in the Phillips, it has uh, luminous indexes and hands, which is super for, uh, yeah, that is, that is, yeah, it gives it more of a sporty look. For watches that you were talking about, Eric, that have kind of a known provenance or they, they've known to have been sold, to have been sold in the last few years, do you think auctions should be more explicit about that in the in the 
catalog descriptions or anything to make clear the the sort of trading provenance you know we talked about this before in the sense that art for example will be very clear in the provenance uh, uh, of when it's changed hands and which auctions it's it's sold at before you know not that it's something you can't google but i'm curious if watch auctions should should take a page from the art market in that that's that respect i i wish they would so if you look at um lot 137 the hoyer autavia um that's the chronomatic model you know it uh obviously doesn't mention that Justin used to own it doesn't mention that it you know was for sale in 2017 at christie's you know it, it sold at that time for seventy-seven thousand. now it's as a low estimate of thirty thousand swiss francs um so we'll see you know how that does obviously the starting bid is is about half of what it sold for previously, um, including premium. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wish they would because someone, you know, someone going into this doesn't realize that these things may have been for sale two years ago. I think one of my favorite stories was we had um, a 3974 in platinum at Christie's when I was there in May. Um, and it sold to uh, an Italian dealer who then put it at Phillips in November. Uh, <laughs> so it was only a six month differential and it sold for about uh, $200,000 more. Uh, so that was pretty funny to see. Uh, that was the fastest flip I've seen <laughs> in terms of a major Geneva auction. You can't get any faster than that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was more information about provenance. It's obviously a very specific reason why they don't they don't uh want to get you don't want to read that this you know this watch came from a dealer whatever but um but uh, i think it would definitely legitimize these things more if there was more history associated with them you know also uh phillips has a top lot in their hong kong auction coming up that's the unique uh 3974 with the um with the Calatrava cross on the dial, you know, you don't typically see that Calatrava cross logo on the dial. Uh, uh, that I find it quite ugly because that's typically something that's on fake, uh, Patek Philippe watches. But I remember when that sold, um, at Phillips previously, I think it was, uh, from, from someone in the singer family and, uh, we'll see how it does now a few years later. It's interesting, you know, you would you would imagine also that someone might also also find the provenance of, for instance, in this case, a Hoyer being part of a Jeff Stein's collection. Some that might be a selling point to some people, I guess you could ask. But um, I guess transitioning into, I guess Tony, what were the what are the watches that are kind of on your radar, the ones that you're finding interesting? Well, I believe it's Christie's that's got a 1990 Cartier crash, which is always cool. That one caught my eye because it's a crash, obviously. They were kind enough to, to quote my Hodinkee article uh, in the lot description. Um, but it's cool to see another crash. You know, the 1967 one sold for, or 1960s one sold for near a um, million dollars last year. But this one's from the 90s. I think they've got an estimate more around 200,000. So it'll be interesting to see how it does. Um, yeah, other... that's, uh, yeah, 180 to 280,000 uh, yeah. Swiss. And I, I'm, it's got the JC mark for Jacques Cartier. It's going to be very interesting. Do you think that's a, a fair uh, estimate, Eric? I think so. Um, you know, the game, of course, as we know, is keep estimates as low as possible. But, uh, I, I would expect that one to go north of 500 all in. Um, and uh, if I was looking for one, that would be, seems like it would be a great one to have. Yeah. Well, it kind of gets back to your point where you were just talking about whichever watch it was that sold for, oh, the Hoyer, sorry, that sold for 77,000 a few years ago, but they've got an estimate of 30 to 60 on it now, which kind of just shows that the estimate is, is has no real basis in reality. And if it did hit the estimate, it wouldn't necessarily be a good result for whoever bought it previously. Gabe? 
Yeah, that's what that's what I was saying with the with the you know the King Cobra and the nitroglycerin. Like the the King Cobra had a last retail price of around three hundred thousand dollars, and I've never seen one trade you know below one fifty, and that was six seven years ago. But I just had a question since we were talking about estimates. We didn't talk about this six two three nine crazy doc. You know, does anybody have any insider history or valuation on this? Because they put a estimate on a request, which usually just means they'll tell you in excess of a million or in excess of five million. No real price uh, guidance on that, even low or otherwise. But uh, you know, and also the six two four one, the Newman, which is gonna go for I, I would assume pretty strong, even in a very um, you know not parabolic uh, Rolex vintage market uh, you know any any insights or thoughts on there guys so that that's a very interesting watch to discuss you know um, I that silver look to the dial um, to me suggests it probably was born in a steel case um, you don't see that look uh, in that watch in a gold watch now this happened with a number of big red dials that are found in gold 6263s and gold 6265s. Uh, if you see that, you have to uh, you have to be very careful. It's actually a you know a subject of some controversy in the field, I would say. But what people would do, rumored, would be to remove the hour markers. And either plate them or put on gold hour markers and then put on gold hands. Um, so uh, so then suddenly you've got the silver looking dial in a, in a gold Daytona case. Um, in all likelihood, that's what happened um, to this watch, uh, in my opinion. Now, it was part of Eric Clapton's collection. Um Obviously, it sold in 2003 and then 2007. Um, you know, I don't want to get sued here, so I, I can say I don't know for a fact that that's the case. It's just an opinion. Uh, but, you know, it's a very interesting thing. You're buying the provenance. You're buying the look. Um, I believe a lot of these pulsation styles were either sourced uh, separately kind of stolen out the back door of Zinger or Rolex back in the day or taken out of different watches and sort of optimized, if you will, put in watches with black bezels or things like that. Uh, the references with black bezels because they're worth significantly more than those with steel bezels. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, we don't need to uh, pretend necessarily that it's something it's not we don't we don't know but um but i certainly if you're buying it would not be under the assumption that it's all original the same way i wouldn't be under the assumption uh you know looking at uh certain women that it's all original either it's <laughs> a good way to put it any any thoughts on valuation price market it's it should be a million dollar plus watch, um, but um, you know, personally, if I was spending that kind of money on a watch, I would not be buying this one. You know, I'd be buying something else. Um, you know, either a great Paul Newman or an RCO or um, a thirty four forty eight in white gold from the John Goldberger collection or something else. For sure. But, I, you know, I think um, just as a, a broader aside, it's, it's very nice to see uh, Monaco Legend doing so well. I think obviously he's Davide, uh, Parmigiani and, and Claude Cohen have been kind of gradually building up these auctions every season. And they had kind of a breakout auction in fall. Obviously, Tyler, the creator, was there when uh, the Cartier auction did extremely well. Uh, and there's just a lot of heavy hitters uh, in those auctions. So uh, that's very nice. You've got um, the Nevadian uh, collection, which is just such a weird name for, for an auction at Sotheby's with a lot of important uh, Patek Philippe's. You've got this Christie's auction. Um, that's the Kairos 
collection um, that's a lot of modern heavy hitter Patek Philippe watches. You know, if you look at the Christie's catalog, by the way, it's tons of modern watches uh, to start out modern Rolexes and things. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just interesting to see this move, you know, five years ago, you would never, you would rarely see a brand new Rolex, uh, in an auction. Uh, and now they're, they're, they're littered with them. So it's just a sign of the times. One of the cool Rolexes actually out of the Christie's is the, um, King Midas reference 4915. Um, if anybody isn't familiar with this one, it doesn't have the King Midas on the dial. It does have it um, signed on the bracelet. So, which I believe um, the Cellini line eventually became the King Midas um, watches. Correct? Is, am I correct in saying that, Eric? No, they start, they, yeah, they started as King Midas and then they switched to having Cellini uh, on, on them, uh, on the dial instead of the Greek Midas. Um, that watch looks incredible. Um, yeah. I've never read it's, uh, it's striped. So it's kind of harkening back to those Rolex princes with the tiger stripe style from the 1930s. I mean, this thing yeah. is out of this world. And then on top of that, it's got the, um, the box that, that they came with. And if anybody wants to check these out, they are basically, um, a, uh, kind of reinterpretation of the red vase, um, pottery from, uh, from ancient Rome and it's just really ancient Greece, yeah. ancient Greece, my apology. And these things are just the best boxes in my opinion, out of any watch the from best. any era. Yeah. The they're, one. Yeah. They're insane. Probably in my opinion, the box may have been added to the watch, but um, the box is a $3,000 plus box. It should be worth more, in my opinion. The the cork boxes are almost twenty thousand dollars now for the Nautilus, and the these uh, Greek vase boxes for the King Midas watches are, in my opinion, even cooler, much much rarer. Um, and uh, yeah, that one is uh, what's the lot number on it? Yeah, it's lot thirty one. Oh, I'm sorry, it's thirty five. Thirty five. Yeah, so check that out. It's also what's what's worth noting is um, if that bracelet doesn't fit, good luck finding a two tone uh, link for those. Yeah, you're not, you, you might, might want to tell this story. There's, it's not going to be an easy uh, process, but tell what you've heard uh, from the bracelet um, discussion, I guess, when it comes to King Midas's. Yeah, so um, you may have seen I had a set of two King Midas watches in white gold recently it's actually my most liked photo on instagram ever over five thousand likes uh you know i didn't put any any sponsorship into it or anything like that it just organically keeps getting tons of likes but um the previous owner i got it from um had it in his collection the set in his collection for a while and he contacted rolex to order additional links because his wrist it's kind of like a seven and a half inch wrist. So he bought the last two white gold King Midas links they had, you know, just about a year ago from, from uh, Rolex uh, was something like $700 per link, but it was pretty cool that they still had them decades later. It's kind of funny. The, the Midas is almost the unspoken, um, stepchild of the asymmetrical watches discussion. I mean, it's just the coolest timepiece, I think. And no one seems to be, you know, bumping it up when it comes to, you know, the love of asymmetrical watches in general, those and, you know, some of the, you know, Richard Abib, uh, Hamilton's, but that, that, those bracelets are just a work of art. I mean, is it, is it a gay Ferraris bracelet or do you think that that's, um, a different bracelet maker? not clear to me um but uh they're absolutely phenomenal watches um just to give context i mean i think the scholarship's gonna be developing on this but um um sorry i've just got to take a break someone's at the door one second <laughs> well i think uh king Midas's are starting to get their moment rihanna was wearing one in her her 
pregnancy announcement photo, some customized one by a jeweler. And I think they're one of those watches that uh, they're starting to get a little bit more attention as like great jewelry pieces from Rolex. So um, it's good to see, right? People going outside of the norm from whatever other Rolex is. Um, and the Midas is a, is a great one, obviously. Do you have any other watches from, from the auctions, Charlie, that you wanted to hit on? Sure. Um, I think there's a few Audemars that are really interesting. Um, first one being, I guess, lot 143 from Philips. It's a uh, digital jump hour. I guess it's more digital because it's got the, um, it's got no hands. It's just in the digital format, but two apertures um, and it's a two tone case. So it's pink gold and uh, white gold. These are pretty interesting. I don't know if there's that many of the that have been produced. I've seen a watch, at least either this one or a similar um, version that surfaced a bunch of times in the late eighties and nineties catalogs. If you look through um, old Habsburg and Feldman slash anti-quorum catalogs, you'll be able to find it. But um, these were really interesting movements that were, um, you know, La Coltra base calibers that were modified by the Piguet family and, there's a few people that I think um, ended up getting them. I think maybe a handful that went to Paddock, um, a, a few that also were sold as Audemars or Gublin, Lucerne watches. And I th also believe there were a few Movados um, that were produced, but the Movado cases, I believe, are a little bit bulkier and the lugs are more pronounced. Um, I think one is in that book that uh, you have, Tony, the uh, Fritz von Ossener, Austinhausen book, uh, there should be a small paragraph about the Piguet family and producing those movements, which is interesting. Um, outside of that, I think the, obviously the, um, the Paddock Philippe 1503, uh, Simon Weisenthal is, is really cool. Uh, there's another, along with that one, there's another um, Paddock uh, rectangular wristwatch that is interesting from the uh, Steel Paddock book, which I was kind of glad to see come up and um, oh yeah. One more Audemars that was, that was interesting was the by register chronograph that the, what is it called? The remaster Oh one was based off of, I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm mistaken in saying that this is the first um, vintage model that's come up since the introduction of the remaster. Um, I guess Gabe or, or Eric, you might be able to tell me if I'm wrong on that one, but I, it'd be interesting to see how much the vintage model goes for with the um, limited edition run of, what was it, like 100 or 150 watches in the automatic version from AP. I think they did, let's just double check with that. I think, I thought they did like 500 of them. Um, oh, maybe, maybe there is more, but I guess. Yeah, so 500, which was wait so... The remaster zero one they did five hundred of, and I can't tell you how many times I've been offered that watch, uh, particularly recently, because uh, supposedly, if you look even on Chrono Twenty Four, there's twelve uh, available, but um, they were having trouble selling them apparently, so they would offer you a fifteen two hundred two if you bought one that you could buy fifteen two hundred two. So all these people bought them to get a fifteen two hundred two, and now they're trying to sell them. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, it's they just produce too many. Now I think that watch is extremely cool that's coming up at Phillips. So you know we'll see how how high it goes. Could be half a million dollar watch. Um, it'll be interesting. On the line of reissues and the originals, I thought it was cool that Phillips has uh, the original Vacheron 222 in every metal. So they've got it in steel, gold, and two-tone, which is pretty cool coming off the back of the, the Vacheron reissue of the 222 just this month, which is pretty faithful to the original and kind of one of my favorite releases from, from Watches and Wonders or of the year so far. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how the renewed interest perhaps in the 222 uh, spurs any bidding on the the original models because I feel like for for maybe a while it's been the forgotten stepchild compared to the the Nautilus and the Royal Oak which is just just not fair to the two 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 in my opinion. 
Yeah, I'm curious if you're going for the um, the mad, unusual stainless steel uh, linear linear uh, format watch that I guess was released in what was it 2021, right? Or did you did you end up get passing on that one? Which watch you cut out there for a second? What was it, the mad the mad? Um... Oh yeah, I got I got the the first the first. Uh... The first one, the the mad one for the friends. Um, I don't tell anyone. I gave it as a gift. Um, it just, you know, as, as a longtime MBNF guy, I just um, it, it's just not something I would grab to wear over like an LM Perpetual or even like an HM five. And I, I prefer the expo the rotor on top that 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 you can see from the top of the movement more on the on the frog um the hm3 so it didn't do much for me i didn't like the proportions as much um and i put in myself for the uh for the uh you know for the selection for the next one for the red one um i i didn't get that one <laughs> they didn't pick me i think i think they're a little salty about that but speaking of mbnf in the phillips uh there's um there's another there's a, one of the music machines, Music Machine 3, which looks like the TIE Fighter, which uh, which is always exciting to see music machines come up for sale as opposed to like Shorn Pens or something like that or Philip Dufour boxes. I'm also excited to see how the Jorn table clock does. That's Philip's lot one. Uh, I have one. You know, it's a cool thing to have. Um, retail was about $2,000. Someone actually put one for sale for seventy five thousand recently, uh, but there's a few on Chrono Twenty Four for uh, something like ten. Sorry, hold one second. Yeah, someone put one up for seventy five thousand recently and took it down. I think they were blacklisted from Jorn, is my understanding. Uh, but there's a few on the on Chrono Twenty Four for kind of 10 to 15 or something like that. And we'll see, see how this one does. It's no reserve four to eight. Um, you know, I just, I like to see this focus on, on having some clocks and cool peripherals. It's, it's good for the watch industry. By the way, speaking of MBNF, I just love for the, the latest edition of the red mad one. I love that they were carefully registering emails of, of interest or support they got after they, uh, announced the first one and they were given first priority for the the second one. I think that's such a cool way to sort of solve the allocation problem. Um, uh, I Yeah, I don't know. I think it's cool that <laughs> apparently they are monitoring their inbox. And I think, I don't know, other brands could probably take a page from, from that as well. And then, you know, the lottery after that, of course. But I thought that was such a, a cool way to solve the problem. I loved it as well. It's great. He's really, uh, that was a brilliant idea. Also, um, I guess switching topics slightly, but in a related way, you know, I would continue to be fascinated by Rolex watches with corporate logos. So I have uh, purchased a few Winn-Dixie pieces recently. Um, and uh, my friend John P., uh, John Petris, uh, who has a YouTube account that I've been on a few times, just put out a video of us talking about the Rolex for Winn-Dixie watches. Um, and uh, Charlie and I are working on a uh, article for my blog about the differences of the, the generations and just a quick look at these watches, which I think are super cool. Uh, you know, they're rarer than Domino's watches. I would, I would say I love the Domino's ones, obviously, and also did a video with John P about them. But, um, you know, it's... It's neat to kind of uh, collect something that someone earned at some point for being a safe driver for 10 years or safely maintaining Winn-Dixie uh, trucks or facilities for 10 years as well. Um, and uh, one of those cool Rolex uh, corporate awards, if you will. What's the, um, what's the difference in terms of desirability from Winn-Dixie versus Domino's. Obviously, Domino's have been having a little bit more of a moment with uh, auctions and videos, people trading them. There's a, kind of a little bit of a cult 
following on the Domino's or Alexa's, but do you get the same sort of interest around Winn-Dixie? It's not as developed, but some collectors I know find them super cool, particularly the driving aspect. Granted, it's truck driving and not uh, race car driving, but uh, it's kind of funny in an ironic way to wear a 10-year safe driver uh, watch in your sports car. Uh, Gabe, you need one of those. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's just a cool thing. And I think in, interest is definitely increasing. So, And I, I put up a Rolex for Honda recently with the Honda logo on the dial and people went berserk. I got so many messages about it. It was really uh, fun to see the reaction when I posted that. Did we, that- did we explore, um, you know, the, the subject of earned watches really in depth before and, or, or do you want to revisit it and kind of like give a little bit of the, the basics of why people appreciate those versus maybe something that was, you know, a specialty dial or a retailer style. Like what's, what's kind of the, the interest around an earned watch. Yeah, I think it's a topic that's been out there a little bit. The wall street journal article by Kate Murphy actually had, uh, had a photo of a Winn Dixie watch that I gave her that she mentioned in the article. Um, she was relatively new to the world of watches, but for her, if she was going to collect watches, she she loved the idea of having a Winn-Dixie watch or a Domino's watch from a franchise owner, top manager, things like that. Um, they, uh, they're more appealing than just buying something that someone went into the store to buy. Um, it's a cool award, you know, the same reason why some people collect old medals or olympic medals we we sold one um that was for for the 1904 olympics in golf in st louis when i was at christie's uh this guy bought it at a an estate auction in california um and uh i sourced it for christie's and it went for about three hundred thousand dollars i believe um so that was was neat to see um and you know people collect it because it was earned uh, and it was uh, something very special and historic. So, you know, a watch is very similar. It's not like it's an Olympic medal, but someone worked 10 years at Winn-Dixie as a truck driver to get that watch. Uh, and hopefully they kept it and, and wore it for a while and didn't just flip it two minutes later. But, um, you know, it's it's neat, that history. The, the whole subject of a watch given by an employer is kind of something lost on our generation. I don't think that many companies are giving out, you know, timepieces after five years, 10 years, 20 years of uh, service. They'd rather just give you something like a, you know, a pen or, or something a little bit less uh, sentimental. Right. But when do you yeah, think was, that? Go for it. I was just talking with someone whose father worked for a major defense contractor uh, and for his 25 year, uh, work anniversary, he got like a hundred dollar boulevard, you know, engraved on the back. That was yeah. just absolute junk. <laughs> and he's like, man, you've spent 25 years there. Like all the things you did. And you got it would have been money. sick if he got the new space view. That would have been cool. Boulevard. <laughs> it goes up with the corporates. Yeah, it, was, it was just a junk. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean something similar. actually, my, my dad retired recently and he got I don't think they even gave him a watch. I think they gave him a credit to the online Tissot store as like Ugh. part of the uh, part of the retirement package. Which we, is need kind of a, we need to do a we need to do a a call for for watch stories of terrible um, you know service awards after your tenure at your business and see what right. comes up. I mean, I'm sure there's nothing good from anybody below 40, 50 years old, right? Yeah, my dad. But, my dad basically, for his 25 years at his uh, clinic, uh, you know, they were typically giving a gold watch, but they basically gave him a Seiko that looked like a date eight gold plate. <laughs> and it's like, you know, not quite the same thing. So these, these Win Dixie and these Domino's watches are kind of 1980s, um, at least for the Win Dixie's, uh, then into the early 2000s for Domino's. I mean, is the is this kind of the last corporate, you know, 
watch of, of merit that people were actually getting from a company. Cause I, I think that the tradition of companies giving nice watches to their employees is something that's kind of more mid century. Um, it seems like that's an anomaly of the Winn-Dixies and the, and the Dominoes. Yes. Yeah. They both were running kind of parallel with these watches with logo dials, Air Kings, 34 millimeter reference 5,500 in the 1980s reference 14,000 in the 1990s through early 2000s. Obviously Domino still does them, but with the, with the clasp, basically the rope, the Domino's logo stuck onto a bracelet link uh, on the six o'clock side. Now Um, I believe when Dixie discontinued it entirely, Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's a shame uh, that, that this isn't really continued in a major way. You know, I think uh, people are missing an opportunity. Anyone who's a CEO of your, you know, if Jeff Bezos is really about it with the, um, you know, watch collecting or somewhere that's got, you know, some, something to prove in terms of a, a company that wants to show how cool they are and, you know, what they, what they value in their employees. I think that's something that they should start the tradition of and get a conversation started because I mean, if they're, there's tons of people who are, you know, big, big uh, watch collectors that are business founders. If any of them are listening, step up. Let's see what happens and uh, go for it, Eric. Charlie, uh, if you spend 25 years at Win Vintage, you can mark my words. I'll be getting you a nice watch. What well, happens uh, about 25 <laughs> months? <laughs> 25 months, we'll see. 25 months, that way I can get my experience on my resume and transfer to... <laughs> <laughs> breaking Eric's heart right here. You can see it. Exactly. Exactly. We have seen like some, some tutors have been custom. I mean, the Ed Sheeran's were customized tutors is a common example, but some, some tutors have been made for custom, you know, people or companies or whatever, which is a cool modern thing. A lot of times though, kind of the Ed Sheeran example is, is a good one, but it feels like yeah. it's more of a, more of an individual thing. Uh, you know, there was the talking watches with Jimmy Yang just the other day and he talks about how Steve Carell gave him a watch and gave, you know, a bunch of people on the cast, a, a Speedmaster or a, a, an Omega. Um, so it does still happen. A lot of times it's more individual nowadays, which is, you know, it has its own charm, but it's not the same as sort of stamping a company logo on the dial, obviously. It is funny, by the way, these cast gifts are, are a big deal uh, for for shows. Um, I've now, I was involved with that one because their Seiko Rowing Blazers watches ended up being Jimmy's cast gift to everyone. So I'm hoping John Malkovich will wear his at some point and Steve Carell too. But um, I've dealt, you know, with some different uh, friends and things in Hollywood and they They'll buy, you know, a couple key people that were involved in the show or their assistants, you know, a watch, um, obviously not something crazy expensive typically, but, but something nice for, for helping them over the course of a year or two or multiple years, if it's multiple seasons. And I feel like watches are still sort of part of the, the Hollywood culture a bit. Um, you know, there was a watch, uh, Robert Downey Jr. would typically get all the cast and staff watches. Uh, Sotheby sold one that a friend of mine owned. Uh, and it said like Robert Downey Jr., the judge on the back, Sotheby sold it. Um, didn't go that high um, because he was just, it was a Milgauss, uh, standard modern Milgauss, but, um, you know, nothing, obviously not a custom logo on the dial or anything, but yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. And also Keanu Reeves, I think bought a, about three or four of his stuntmen for John Wick uh, sports Rolexes. And, um, you know, it seemed like it was, it was kind of like a genuine moment captured. It wasn't like this, uh, just, I, I don't know. For me, I think Keanu is a pretty interesting celebrity. If I were to you know, actually give props to a celebrity that you, you see this uh, moment where his stuntmen and him are in this Rolex boutique captured through a window by somebody. And they're all just giddy about the fact that they just got a Rolex as a gift for, you know, wrapping up their production. I mean, that's kind of, I think that, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's really cool to see. So hopefully we'll have more of those types of stories to uh, report on. The, yeah. Also, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes got all his offensive linemen, Submariners, uh, uh, Mitch Schwartz talking watches on Hodinkee. He has that. Um, I met Mitch uh, in November in Kansas City, and we were talking about gifts from other quarterbacks. One of uh, one of the other quarterbacks that he protected got everyone a custom suit, but somehow his turned out horrendous, and he tried to return it to get something, get it properly fitted, and it never worked out, so he didn't really get a gift. <laughs> and like just the the banter and the offensive linemen about how various linemen over the years were shafted in different ways because someone's feet were too big and the quarterback forgot to get him shoes and he never got a gift <laughs> years <laughs> later he's still upset and salty about it but uh it's just really really funny all the the banter about that stuff gabe or uh, gabe or tony i'm curious have you guys ever been gifted a watch that you you know either earned or maybe it was sent like what's the What's y'all's perspective on watches that are gifted or earned and the sentimental value of those? Yeah, it definitely depends on, on the person in the watch, but there's always there's always some sentimental value. My mom gifted me uh, after I got out of the Army in 2012. She, gave, she got me the 50th anniversary James Bond Omega Seamaster. Um, you know, it's not something I particularly wear, but definitely has a lot of sentimental value. Um, and yeah, I've definitely gifted watches to people. And I think it's, it's a nice gift, especially for people for, you know, to give to people who aren't, uh, necessarily hardcore watch people see if, you know, how they appreciate it and maybe sparks a little something in there. So, uh, you know, I, I was gifted recently, uh, a pocket watch, uh, that belonged to my friend's, uh, grandfather because it had Hebrew dial on it and it just, you know, no value, but a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of sentimental value that, you know, comes from family and a good friend, his family and, uh, something that means something to me as well. So, you know, definitely I appreciate a lot. Yeah, I got a, a Wind Vintage gifted Vulcan Cricket recently, which has uh, very little sentimental value, but it's, it's nice to have nonetheless. <laughs> ah, just a 30th birthday gift. That's not a very important birthday. <laughs> That's true. Talk to me when you get to 40 or 50. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any other news you guys want to hit on? Or, you know, last, last time we talked, we hit on Rolex and Tudor for Watches and Wonders. Not sure if you guys want to hit on any other releases or if we're, we're totally past that at this point, which which very well might be the case. I think we're past it. I don't really. <laughs> Watches and wonders. Watch it up and invite us. It, it came <laughs> and, out. It came and went very quickly. Uh, the transience of life. Yeah. It's so funny how like it feels like it's the biggest deal in the world for a, a week and then you know we'll never remember 99% of the watches and then I also think like just as a, a a perspective setting type of thing like it's good to have these auctions right afterwards because this is kind of the the stuff that's enduring and it makes you think about like it makes me at least think about like oh which of these watches are actually going to matter and you know five, 10, 20 years like that we're going to care about when we see an auction catalog or, or whatever it is. And the, the answer is most of them we, we won't care about. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like yeah. about, about watches is their sort of enduring nature that you can theoretically wear them forever or whatever. And sometimes the consumerism aspect of, of it and the new releases rubs me the wrong way a little bit. So glad we're past it, I suppose. Yeah, and I'm just going to take this moment to dunk on Longo for a second. Um, they released a minute repeater in 39 millimeters, and they're acting like they're splitting the Red Sea, turning water into wine. It's a minute repeater, 39 millimeters. Uh, do we forget that Patek has been making 36 millimeter repeaters for 50 years, and AP has been has made you know 39 millimeter Grand Sonneries? Uh, in the 90s, and they even made 34 millimeter repeaters. I, okay. And also, did, I don't know if anybody saw um, Wilhelm talking about the titanium Odysseus. Did anybody catch that? He's He was with a straight face talking about how difficult and how special it was to be working with titanium. I, I mean, I looked at it and the bracelet, and I was like, you know, 
nobody nobody walked over to Debethune, I guess, to like ask them how they do their their blue titanium and their mirror polished titanium. And I mean, you know, these guys don't even don't even mention it in their in their communications anymore because it's <laughs> You know, this is part of their DNA and so many people do titanium, you know, protect does titanium, even though not many people know about it. You know, nobody really would add that if they had anything of substance to add to, to a new watch. And yeah, I get it. It's limited. You got to sell it, but you know, they'll sell and come on a 39 millimeter minute repeater and a titanium case and bracelet. Uh, you know, even AP's done that for over 20 years, I think at this point. Dear okay. Wilhelm, <laughs> I wrote you, but you still ain't call. <laughs> Wilhelm has a great story. One of the best stories I've heard, actually. And I'll, I guess I'll, I'll ruin it because I'm not sure he's told it publicly. But uh, he previously was a car salesman for BMW in Africa, and um, he uh, basically, you know, was in charge of selling BMWs everywhere. And I believe um, it was Swaziland, which is uh, an independent country within South Africa, basically, um, landlocked country, a kingdom. Um, he was going to meet with the king. Um, and he basically, you know, the king was a top buyer of BMWs. And I believe he had something like 80 wives. Uh, and he basically had a 10 a.m. meeting and he goes, you know, there is waiting, 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 waiting. It's 11 p.m. at night. Um, and uh, he decides to go to the hotel because, he, you know, he's just going to wait until the next day. And he gets a call basically via the hotel phone, I think at 4am saying, where are you? The King's waiting for you. <laughs> kind of rush over and uh, convinces the King. One of his wives wanted a BMW and he had to, out of fairness uh, to buy them for every wife. So he bought like 80 or 110, something like that. BMWs on the spot. Each wife got, got a new BMW. <laughs> And Wilhelm had quite a story to tell. You think he's selling longs to the, to all the wives now? Yeah, he should. He should go back. <laughs> Easy money. But, it, you know, it's funny because usually the watch industry is people that are, are obviously just in the watch industry all these years. And uh, Wilhelm came from the car industry. So it's pretty cool. I think he's the only South African accent I've ever heard in, this, in the watch industry as well. No, he's German. Is we'll he German? Part out. Yes, Wilhelm yeah. <laughs> Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess he could be a, you know, but, but yeah, he has this like cool hybrid uh, German uh, South African accent. He did a cool. Yeah. Speaking of cars, he did a cool restoration on a uh, on a Aston Martin. I think it was a DB5. That was pretty pretty nicely done. He's a car nut. He has a uh, he's had a Mercedes Gullwing, which he said didn't drive that well. It was kind of too stiff and very uncomfortable. Um, one of the things that he did, which I understand from a business sense, but from a collector sense, was very uh, upsetting. Is when he came in. Of course, they still had the Wellendorf bracelets, um, and I want to say it was around 2010 when he joined Longa. Uh, and took over, and he just thought it, at that time the long uh, Wellendorf platinum bracelet was sixty thousand uh, dollars, and the yellow was like forty eight thousand or something like that. So um, he just thought that looked ridiculous, you know that that in some cases the bracelets were more expensive than the watches. So he discontinued all that supposedly a number of them were melted down. Uh, so um, that was uh, is a bummer. Obviously, I hope they'll reconstitute that relationship at some point, but we shall see. Those are the coolest bracelets made They're anywhere after 1970. They're unbelievable. If anyone has a white gold one, 
20 millimeter I'm looking uh, for a client. So let me know. The um, also good Wellendorf story. They, their jewelry is phenomenal, very heavy, well-constructed, incredible stuff. Um, and uh, <laughs> one regarding that Wellendorf, regarding Wellendorf. So uh, Wempy sells Wellendorf jewelry and uh, they had an event recently where they invited clients to the opera um, and the, the basically the ladies got to wear a piece of Wellendorf jewelry. Um, and so a friend of mine uh, who's a client's wife had this kind of beautiful, simple gold necklace, you know, it's heavy. Uh, and at the end of the night, she's like, I really like this. You know, we should, you know, want to ask the price, like maybe you could get it for me as a gift. So he asked the price and it was over a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> the guy took a big gulp. <laughs> there was like essentially no diamonds on it at all. I think it was just gold. He's like, mm, that might be a little bit much right now. Well, thanks everyone for joining our, our first auction preview, perhaps, uh, episode 13. As always, DM any of us or at Significant Watches on Instagram and follow us if you haven't for uh, recommendations on future episodes, future topics. We've gotten a few great ones that are that are sort of in the queue for additional or future episodes and always looking for more ideas. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys soon.